It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this week's New Statesman podcast. I'm Patrick McGuire, and this week I'm joined by my colleagues Stephen Bush, Anoush Chikelian, and Alva Ray to discuss what does a leaked report into factionalism at a Labour Party HQ mean for Keir Starmer, and you ask us what we're reading and what we're not during lockdown. So one of the big stories over the bank holiday weekend was um, a leaked internal Labour Party report that claims factionalism in the party machine hindered Jeremy Corbyn and, and that leadership's ability to tackle anti-Semitism in the party and also tried to obstruct the party's electoral performance in 2017. Now, this is an 860 page document. And while it's been confirmed that it is, it is a genuine draft document, it's unclear who actually commissioned it, who it was written by, what it was for. Sky reported that party lawyers have said that they wouldn't be submitting it to the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which is, of course, investigating anti-Semitism in the Labour Party at the moment. But we don't even know if it was for that purpose either. So what were your first thoughts when you um, had sight of the report in the journalistic parlance, Stephen? I mean, obviously, my first thought was, oh, God, could this not have happened at a time when I was having to spend two days reading this on, you know, on NS time, not Stephen Bush time. But I think so. So, yeah, with the with the caveat that I have only been able to read it once. And therefore, I may have, have, have missed something. I think, you know, so the report itself actually doesn't go as far as to go. And this was deliberate mm. or kind of anti-Corbyn elements within the party headquarters actively tried to prevent him winning the 2017 election. That is a conclusion that is being made for it mm. rather than in the report itself. But it essentially, it is a kind of a report prepared for reasons unknown, which in of itself has triggered a another report, independent investigation that will be, be commissioned but not run by the new leader and deputy leader, which will cover three things. One, the specific allegations about the party and how it operates in the report, which include a variety of reported to be statements that are not, yeah, they very much are not in accordance with the values and aims of, of the party and are not professional. So there's kind of that pillar. Pillar two is, you know, the circumstances of its commissioning, who it was written by. Among other things, the report does not redact the personal details of the people who made complaints and the leaking, which has compounded that problem of them not being made private because those things are, are now sort of semi-freely circulating online. Although I would 
imagine that the legal processes around information protection will will take care of, of that aspect fairly swiftly. So I guess my kind of main thinking about it, and I'm the annoying thing is whenever I get a document of any length, you, I, you prefer to be able to read it cold rather than in this situation having had it leaked to you in a kind of like, well, seeing as everyone else has got it kind of way. Yeah. Which meant that I didn't come to it sort of, you know, in a kind of like, what's it? But I broadly think that uh, Adam Wagner, the lawyer, suggesting it may actually have been planned as an EHRC submission because it has a structure like that that and does very much speak to some of the terms. The report sort of explicitly tries to do one thing, which is broadly to say that from 2015 to 2017, when the party headquarters were still in the hold of Corbyn Skeptics, in which, you know, the kind of majority of people, you know, I think it's fair to say you describe them as kind of right brownites, you know, so people who whose first preference in 2010 was to vote for Ed Balls, whose second preference was to vote for David Miliband, and whose very, very, very distant third and fourth preference was for Andy Burnham and Ed Miliband, and who, you know, very pointedly would have put a, a fifth point, a fifth based uh, point by, by Diane Abbott. So very much that was the sort of politics of, of the office in 2015. And the argument that the report what sort of seeks to make is, look, the central problem here was factionalism in the office and you know, intense opposition to the leader made us dysfunctional for the first two years. But when Jenny Formby became general secretary of the Labour Party, things vastly improved. And I think it does a much better job of, you know, obviously it's, its content is fiercely contended and will, of course, all be probed by this second independent report. I think it does a much stronger job of proving, well, it does a much stronger job of advancing the first point than it does the 2018, the problem after then was just dysfunctionality case, not least, I mean, in many ways, right, the, the problem the report has with advancing that argument is the very existence of an unredacted report in which the party marks its own ha- homework when the one specific and repeated demand of the various community organisations has been for the party to stop doing in its own sort of homework checking on this issue, you know, underlines that it sort of fails to make that case for itself. But the, the kind of significant political thing i think is that it in an odd way right in terms of those of us who have been kind of trying to work out who who Starmer is and what he's really about in an odd way right i think what this report has done is it has semi made that choice for him right so the question before starmer was going to be when you say you want to professionalize the party do you mean genuine professionalism you know, kind of the party staff behaving, you know, being perhaps more ecumenical, an end to the kind of culture of fixed and was prevalent even, yeah, I mean, just after 2019 intake about many of their selections, even in, in Corbyn's period of internal hegemony. Does he actually mean away with all that? Or does he mean, let's bring some old faces back? Or let's, yeah, let's do that, but, but do it with different people on the, the old levers. Now, I suspect, and of course all of this pens, the genuinely independent inquiry into the report, but I suspect that one of the consequences of this report is it makes that decision for him, if that makes sense. And I guess that was my sort of overwhelming impression of it, right? Then partly because, um, well, I had this slightly weird thing, and the second I finished reading it was the moment that the kind of press release about the independent inquiry came through. So that was slightly coloured my impression of it. But I kind of thought, oh, well, in an odd way, the decision on this has... Kira and Angela have made their decision on this, which is basically to go, well, we think we have a job of work cleaning up the institutions and practices. And then that problem does not, yeah, does not just start uh, in September 2015. But in an odd way, I think the significant thing is it kind of means that we won't 
ever fully be able to look back on the decisions they made in terms of personnel and go, that was what this project was really about, because I think some of those decisions have been taken out of his hands. The point you make about party unity is interesting and in how one defines it, because if we look look from the other end of the telescope, there was a live question before this kicked off, which is surely the left of the Labour Party, be they at the grassroots or in Parliament, are divided. They don't share a diagnosis of how the 29 leadership result happened. Indeed, some of them are quite happy about it. And they lacked a point of unity around which to coalesce. And if you look at the reaction from the campaign group and others on the left of the party, from Momentum and similar, it's clear that this has given them a lightning rod for discontent and a narrative that the left of the party hitherto lacked. And in a way, it has perversely empowered that wing of the party. So Keir Starmer is going to have to deal with that. And that further constrains, as as you say, his capacity to reshape the party in his own image rather than genuinely seek to unite its um, vociferous coalition. He, he, he will, as you say, genuinely, circumstances have constrained his options there. So it's not a great inheritance for any leader. But, but conversely, surely if his intention was genuinely to do that, and there's a school, there is a school of thought that says it was, such are his politics, then being seen not to bring back old faces, if the inquiry means he is unable to do that, is you know a cheap way of making political hay out of this, if that's not too crass a way of thinking about it. Because if his intention wasn't to reappoint old faces, well, if he's seen not to do that now, he might get more credit for doing so. I don't know. Yeah, I think I was going to disagree with your conclusion slightly. And then I think actually that caveat is entirely the right one, right? Then if you take it as read, and this very much would be my diagnosis of the reshuffle and of, you know, the people he chose to promote most and the people he chose not to promote and the ways that as he did incorporate people from the right and left of the party, he largely has done it in a I'm aligned with so-and-so on X and so they will be the minister for X kind of way. Now, I think in an odd way, yeah, as I've repeatedly said about the sexual harassment stuff, which was, I think, when a when the kind of serious critical histories of, of the Corbyn era are written, the moment that people will go, this kind of shows it actually just wasn't fundamentally a serious project for power, will be the ostentatious re- refusal to sacrifice a few of their own people, not because their own people are more pure on the issue of sexual harassment, simply because they were in a, a smaller minority to begin with. So to be honest, even if they had been 100% in indices of it among them, they would have still been better off letting the kind of cleansing fire work its way through the party and choosing not to. And I kind of think in many ways, right, like professionalising a political party is like that, right? Like even if at the end of it you've like you've lost some of your own allies directly, you're still in a stronger position anyway. Of course, the question is, is if... If what was actually meant by all of that was, you know, simply recreating the, you know, the kind of the 2015 structure, the sort of the school of Labour thought that I'm afraid I do sometimes slightly unflatteringly privately refer to as make Labour relevant losers again. Yeah, I think that this has closed that path, I, I suspect. However, if that's not the path Keir wants to go go down, I think it actually gives him this sort of, um, I was about to say headwind, but I think that might be the reverse backwind, whatever it is. A, headwind, a tailwind. I think it's a tailwind. It's given a tailwind to to that, if that is 
who the the real Starmer is. Yeah, for instance, if he didn't want to appoint a certain person named in that report as general secretary, he can now say, well, nobody named in that report is going to be my general secretary, while knowing he wasn't going to do that anyway. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Oh, so the question, well, so actually I'm going to cheat and smush together two questions, which are what are the podcasts and audiobooks and board games and video games are you enjoying during the lockdown? Those are so those questions from sort of two and a bit people. And then some people have asked about two of those. Some people have asked about one of those. But I just thought in general, a kind of the question is clearly like, what are, what are we doing when we're not doing this in, in lockdown? So I don't know if this counts as a board game, but (laughs) about a year ago, we bought a foosball table and not just a small plastic children's foosball table, but a proper wooden one that we found on Facebook Marketplace. And it's really nice. Like it's got the little metal players. It's actually the the French in the French mold of foosball tables. So Babby Foot is the actual is the actual name of the game. And it's been a bit of an albatross since then because it's absolutely huge <laughs> and it just sits in, in the bedroom and gets in the way and we just sort of like bruise ourselves while we're walking around it. But it has been an absolute godsend <laughs> since this began because all we do is just, you know, if we're bored or we want something to distract us or we can't think of anything else to do, we just, we, we, we jouer au babby foot and we're really, really good at it now. <laughs> And I just, you know, I feel like I might be able to play competitively after this period. But it's also really nice because it's something that I used to play. And there's a reason why I'm good at it, because I've got the muscle memory from when I used to play as a child in Lebanon, because they have that sort of French legacy there where a classic evening of drinking and entertainment is to is to play foosball. And I used to play it with my dad and his friends and they had these classic wooden French tables as well. So so it's a nice little memory as well. Out of interest, why do you call it foosball? It's very, it's I don't. Very I'm just trying to say it. I know. I'm trying to. I'm trying to sort of say what most people most people understand it as from Friends, which I think is where most people know it from. But, uh, um, yeah, okay. I don't actually call it that. I call it baby foot baby. or table football. Table football. So I, I prefer baby. Foot. I'd forgotten that. I'd forgotten that from my GCSE French. That literally yeah. brings back traumatic <laughs> memories of French exchanges, being in pubs with Georges. <laughs> Having to play fruit and being terrible at it. <laughs> well, you better never face me in a game, Alva, because I am better than George. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been up to, Stephen? It's one of those weird things where I keep I keep saying, "Oh, I'm dealing with it fine," and then I look at what I'm reading, and it's just like so clearly at some like my current my current reading habits are clearly the sign of someone in like a deep level of emotional distress at some point because I've been rereading the comic strip the collected comic strips from Doctor Who magazine from 1996 to 2005, the best era of, of Doctor Who. 
in which the show was I got it was just such a hipster douchebag opinion to hold as well. I was just at the best era of the show when it was off the air. Yeah, Paul McGann, who'd played it in a in actually a very good made-for-TV movie, was the canonical Doctor, but because his adventures were entirely seen off-screen, you had kind of like comic book artists and radio producers doing very interesting things within that kind of universe. But, of course, the main reason why I've been... So I've been reading those. I've been reading some of the old Eighth Doctor adventures. Of course, the main reason why I've been reading those is they remind me of a time in my sort of late childhood, early teens, when I was, you know not locked up inside i keep allegedly saying and what i'm going to do is is like read like ducks newburyport and the mirror and the light i mean the mirror and light which i consciously bought in a kind of i'm going to be locked in my home soon therefore i don't need to worry about carrying this on the tube and i have have not got got around to it i've really got into yeah another like trends from like the mid noughties uh, the video game Life is Strange, which I strongly recommend to anyone. It's kind of choice-based, which means if, like me, you're deeply malcoordinated, you don't have to worry about, like, dying because you couldn't press X quickly in succession. But it's a really interesting, like, slice-of-life video game. But that is essentially what I am doing because, yeah, I'm very much clearly not handling this weird period. Alva, what are you up to? So, in a way, I don't know which of the weird hobbies and, and um, interests I've taken up to mention because there are honestly so many. But like you, I feel like I've, I've been handling everything fine and I actually do just mainly feel very lucky that I'm in a reasonably nice situation to handle this virus. But I did spontaneously order a keyboard to pick up the piano again, having not played since I left for university. So I've been... Like I'm really, really bad. Anytime I've gone traveling or been staying with people and they have a piano, it always comes up that I can play and they always think I'm being modest when I say I'm really bad and then I start playing and I'm terrible. So I'm really trying to work on it. I'm trying to find an online teacher because I'm really bad at, or like I'm very slow at reading the bass clef for my left hand. But that's the sort of the new hobby I'm trying to take up. Then also a very only child thing is that when I was growing up, my mum felt that it was very important for me to have a really good knowledge of old films. So a bit like you, Stephen, re-watching old films sort of takes me back to a nice point in childhood, but it's also a, a good education from my partner. So he had never seen Cinema Paradiso, which I think is the best film ever made. And we watched that together a few days ago. And we've been watching lots and lots of old black and white Hollywood films but Cinema Paradiso which isn't a Hollywood one is the one I would absolutely recommend to anyone who hasn't seen it it's just about a little boy who helps the projectionist um, in a local cinema in Sicily and about the the sort of the life in the village there and there's just it's sort of it's not really what it's about though it's just the light and the the warmth and the love of cinema and and everything in it. It's just the most brilliant film ever. We've been watching that. I've also got a jigsaw on the go. I've got really into yoga and running, running a book club with my friends, did some baking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, handling it great. Wow. How wholesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel so lazy in comparison. Uh, I suppose it's my turn. Very boring answer. I'm writing a book. I spend most of my free time doing that. When I'm not doing that, I don't know, it's the done thing to recommend podcasts on other podcasts. But I wait with bated breath all week to for the new episode of a podcast called Quickly Kevin Will He Score to drop, which is a podcast about 90s football, which is very funny and good. If anyone listening to this podcast is in the middle of that particular Venn diagram, they sort of dredge up 
weird documentaries about 90s football and watch them and interview very notable and obscure figures. For instance, the latest episode is about Torquay United in the uh, 90s, which is good value. But yeah, I mean, I've just got sort of like a graveyard of lockdown aspirations. I really wanted to rewatch a very slow and bucolic detective series from the 90s called Pie in the Sky, which the summer before I went to uni used to be on ITV3 all night, like back-to-back episodes. There are 40 episodes in total, I think. And I used to have this routine where I'd watch, I don't know if anyone remembers The Valleys, which is was MTV's South Wales remake of yes, I Jersey slash Geordie Shore. So that would be on at midnight. I watched The Valleys at midnight, and then Geordie Shore <laughs> would be on at one. And then I watched Pie in the Sky, like two till four. So it was like really like sublime to the ridiculous. Anyway, the premise of Pie in the Sky is Richard Griffiths is like this maverick genius detective, despite being, you know, morbidly obese. And his life's ambition is to retire to the countryside to run a restaurant called Pie in the Sky, which mainly specialised in pie. But on his last day, the police chief, who was so terrified of losing Richard Griffiths as his star detective, sort of staged staged an instant where Griffiths was sort of fingered for taking a bribe, even though that wasn't true. So he was sort of like, okay, you can retire on the basis that you work for me on a retainer. So, you know, every episode is like <laughs> Richard Griffiths has mastered a new pie and he's just about to tuck into the pie or serve the pie. And his wife gets a phone call. It's like, you know, you're going to have to go and solve a crime. And he resents doing it so much, but he's so good at it. And it's a very pure and wholesome TV show, but I've not watched a single episode of it because I'm too busy pretending to work. <laughs> at least, Patrick, you'll, you'll be one of the very few people to have actually written a book in lockdown the way probably so many people have have hopes to do. So I'm actually very bitter about this because so I had, before before the lockdown, I was writing, and thankfully probably never going to inflict on the world, a truly terrible bit of derivative science fiction about right get this it's about like a future london in which the the air quality has got so bad and everyone has to stay inside and so it's now gone from being a terrible derivative science fiction novel to a terrible derivative coronavirus novel and so it's gone from being something which should definitely never be published to something which i'm now actively ashamed of even though none of none (laughs) like it's, it's become so much worse (laughs) <laughs> as a result of this crisis. I would honestly love to read that. I bet there'll yeah, be I'd a like publisher listening who, yeah, will want a piece of that. Speaking of books, I mean, I've got a stack of unread books on my desk. I brought one of them back from London with me, which is Neville Shoots on the Beach, which is about a group of people in Australia who are waiting on the beach for the fallout of a nuclear explosion to kill them. It was the inspiration for Morrissey's uh, hit single, Every Day is Like Sunday. Not read it. And then on top of that, I've got uh, a volume of Pevsner's Buildings of England. Now, this is a sort of get your tiny violins out. I ordered Pevsner's volume on North Lancashire, which includes my native Southport, so I could get on my bike and look at every building that's mentioned in Pevsner in my downtime. And um, the Amazon seller sent me the wrong one. They sent me Manchester in the southeast of Lancashire. So... I mean, I can just order another North Lancashire one, but that's going to take a long time. So that's, you know, it was a week of anticipation followed by disappointment and I can't be bothered to go to the post office. Well, it's irresponsible to go to the post office to send it back and I've got no way of getting to South East Lancashire. What a life I live. <laughs> there are worse scenarios to be in. I'm, I'm very grateful to have been sent to, to have been sent the wrong pest there. And when this is all over, hopefully I'll be healthy enough to go to South East Lancashire and Manchester and look at those buildings. 
it's an odd one. So, because one of the many weird ways in terms of like, I haven't found any listing build it, listed buildings, but like texts which have now become weirdly normal is like texting my partner the other day to go, "Great news! I've discovered another graveyard." Like, um, there's uh, <laughs> like there's there's oh a bit. God, that the I... amount of time we spend in graveyards during this pandemic is it's really dark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Our daily walk is around the same graveyard. <laughs> and it does feel like more graves are appearing, even though it's a Victorian graveyard. It's very bleak. Stephen, I'm, I imagine your local is what, Abney Park? My local is Abney Park, yes. Although I've actually, I've discovered a thing that we, we'd believed for ages were like gardens behind one of the estates is actually just another like, is like a Quaker cemetery. Oh, lovely. Yeah, no, it's very nice. I mean, the, the, the one thing I would change is that there's there's like a very cute child of indeterminate gender and their dad who go out and play football as their like exercise thingy will be in the like green bit in the middle of our estate and um the child does like the world's most like elaborate goal celebrations despite the fact that yeah like it's it's one of those like yeah kind of like we'll properly like run to one corner of this quite small patch of grass and then like do the like looking at the skies kissing of the fingers it's just like it's one of those things where like the level of investment in the various goal celebrations like i keep hoping that eventually the child will do will do the robot it's it's very cheering the, i hope you've one... come up with a chant for the child something <laughs> appropriate on the very first day of lockdown my friend suggested that we start a book club so this group of friends it, it originates with me and my best friend who were born in the same hospital in belfast on the same day and as we got older we've sort of we have friends from primary school and we added more at secondary school and we've added more people since we moved to London so it's quite a quite big group of of us they're you know so, including some of my oldest friends and um all very smart people but not super literary but as a sort of effort to to read more and as a just sort of nice distraction some of them are doctors and having quite an intense time and others are teachers working with some poor kids in London who are you know the children of key workers and are still coming in they just sort of wanted a nice distraction so it's been really interesting I mean I could kind of extol the virtues of it but there are also some definite downsides one of my friends who's a lawyer picked Vile Bodies by Evelyn Waugh I don't know if any of you have read it my book group is doing that at the moment are you reading it at the moment yeah so I'm so I'm actually listening to it as an audiobook because that's an excellent move well, so the problem I'm having with doing it is an audiobook, and the problem I realise I have with audiobooks in general is that I'm really enjoying it, but I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm enjoying it because I'm enjoying Vile Bodies or because I'm enjoying Robert Hardy reading hmm. Vile Bodies. That is so interesting that you're reading it. So basically, our book club concluded. So Harry our, was our friend who picked it. The first thing he said was that he thinks he enjoyed it because it was audiobook and almost everyone else said that they didn't really massively enjoy it and they find it really difficult to follow and everyone concluded that it was you know better as an audiobook and it's a shame that they hadn't just performed it as a play right away. So I think it's interesting that you're enjoying it because I find it really hard going. For listeners who who haven't read it's by Evelyn Waugh in his sort of earlier period published in 1930 in a similar style as decline and fall sort of about the the bright young things of the 1920s who just sort of party and do nothing and it's a a social satire I find it really hard going and just sort of like the lack of character development all kind of vacuous and annoying even though I I like even more other stuff and there is something very 
even though I did an English degree, I think there's something very weird about reading a book because you've been told to. And I think it's interesting that it was also your book club's choice, Stephen. I feel like in both cases, it was maybe picked just because it's very short. Yeah, how come you've both chosen that book? So we we have a voting system. I don't I say a voting system, we vote. I, I, don't, I don't understand what it's just, it's, it's really innovative. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> oh God, this, this whole period is gradually destroying my cognitive function. It genuinely, it was like watching a general election, right? In the, that horrifying moment when you realise the forces of conservatism are again going to be triumphant, right? <laughs> because at first, it's like, you know, like, at first, like, you know, like, Girl, Woman, Other, which did come a strong third, like, you know, like books I actually wanted to like. And it's one of those things where it's just like, oh, why? Why is this happening? Stephen, that's so funny because I proposed Girl, Woman, Other and um, it was voted down for being too long. So there are similar themes running through our book club choices. Yeah, I guess everyone likes Brideshead Revisited or something. Although, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. So also full disclosure, my book club is the Parliamentary Press Gallery's book club. So I feel like <laughs> the influence of Evelyn Ward's scoop is probably what has triggered its, to my mind, horrifying win. I I have a hipster favourite war, which is um, The Loved One, which is his um, novella, which is a satire on the Californian funeral home industry. It's very dark, mm. very funny. Mm, I haven't read that. It's about 80 pages long and it's sort of laugh out loud. He wrote it as such like a grotesque satire on the California of the of the thirties and forties. He thought no American could possibly like this book, but Americans absolutely. And it's like a satire on expat, you know, British expats in 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 California. And he thought no American could possibly like this book. And then it was really popular in America, and it was adapted twice as a Hollywood film. Um, and it's partly a satire on Hollywood. And he was so so angry about it. Which um, makes the re- experience of reading it all the all the better. There's a there's a lovely line on the on the Wikipedia page, which is where I get most of my information. That said he was baffled and even angered by its success in America, which <laughs> really tickles me. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Patrick McGuire, our political editor Stephen Bush, our Britain editor Anush Chagallian, and my fellow political correspondent Alva Ray. The theme music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons, and it's produced by Nick Hills. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.